Hello, everyone. I'm Amelia Allen, and welcome to your favorite podcast, Altitude Crime. Okay, that might have been a little bold to say, but I do appreciate you guys tuning in every single week to listen. If you're a new listener, welcome. Welcome to the Crime Clan. So as you all know, information you need is on altitudecrime.com, including the link to the Patreon account and the link to Cup Kayla and the Big Frosting Mess, an absolutely adorable children's book. You can find that on the shop page of the website if you're interested in checking that out. So today's episode is one that I can't believe I didn't think of covering sooner. We know that technology has such a huge influence in our lives, and mainly in the realm of dating. So we're going to talk about two cases today in which the influence of dating apps came into the cases at different points of the crime. The first case we'll talk about connected a killer to a victim, and the second one we'll talk about somebody's activity on a dating app served as a motive for killing. I'm also going to include some safety tips for dating online at the end of this episode. A lot of us that are around my age know a lot of these, but it's always helpful to get reminders. And some of these are things that I hadn't thought of that it's always nice to get somebody else's perspective. So without further ado, let's get into it. Sean Michael Crescentini was 30 years old and lived in Colorado Springs, Colorado for a long time, for quite a big chunk of his life. Sean worked as a carpenter and originally worked at Pioneer Flooring, where he learned to install hardwood floors. After learning the tools of the trade, he opened his own business called Hardwood Flooring Company. Sean had three brothers, and he actually had his younger brother join him as a partner in the business. He then encouraged his brother's friends to work for him and learn to install flooring as well and get some of those technical skills. Sean was also married to a woman named Renee Turner, and through that marriage had a stepson and a stepdaughter, Liam O'Neill and Christy Davidson. On August 15th, 2015, the family went to Fargo's for dinner. Now, if you are unfamiliar with this classic Colorado Springs eatery, (laughs) Fargo's is a pizza joint and it's a pretty big building. And they were kind of known for the women dressed in these very like 1800s long dresses. You knew your pizza was ready because a number would pop up on one of the mini mirrors throughout the place. There's these mannequins on a balcony that like look like they're on a date and they like dress them up for holidays and stuff like that. There's a big arcade. It's a whole thing. I guess a lot has changed there since COVID happened. So if you've been to Fargo since the reopening, please contact me and let me know what you thought because I haven't gone back yet. But for somebody in Colorado Springs, this is a pretty like quintessential place in town. Sean and Renee went with Renee's autistic daughter, Christy. I believe she would have been about 10 at this time. Sean had a really good relationship with his stepdaughter and had actually kind of helped her start to come out of her shell. So the trio spent the evening eating pizza, playing arcade games, and dancing to the player piano in the restaurant. Fernando Rosales, who was 23 years old, had joined the U.S. Army in the summer of 2001. He was stationed at Fort Carson in Colorado Springs and was a 12-year Army veteran and staff sergeant. Rosales had been deployed three times and did tours in both Iraq and Afghanistan. He was highly touted by his supervisors and had earned the Army Commendation Medal. Rosales had two sisters and a younger brother, and they would describe him as the role model in their family. He was always there for everyone, and he was known to provide financial support to his family members when they needed it, including his parents. On August 15, 2015, Fernando Rosales had been out at a bar and ended up getting a ride home from a friend because he was drunk. These two men would end up being brought together later that evening in a meeting that would change their worlds forever. The two had actually met on Grindr about a month prior to their first meeting in person late in the evening of August 15th, 2015. 
Now, if you are unfamiliar with the Grindr platform, this is a hookup app for gay men. Rosales would later tell authorities that the two men had not spoken, which I'm assuming meant that they'd not talked on the phone, but I could be wrong. They could have, like, matched and then not messaged until later that night. Or I don't know if it's matching. I haven't used the platform, so if you want to clarify that for me if you're listening, let me know. But either way, they had not had a lot of contact before they met in person this night. So as Rosales is leaving the bar that night, he messages Sean and says, hey, come meet me at my house. Sean was receptive and left his house and his wife asleep in bed and went over to Rosales' place. Fernando Rosales' house was in southeast Colorado Springs on the 2500 block of Prescott Circle West, which is near the intersection of Shelton Road and Astrazon. Once Sean got to the home, he began to perform oral sex on Rosales, but he also started to make some pretty demeaning comments. So Rosales rejected this and he stopped the sexual encounter. Well, as this happens, Sean starts to get dressed and then as he's getting dressed, he starts to lunge at Rosales, according to obviously Rosales' story. He said that Sean kind of just kept lunging at him and pretending like he was going to punch him and overall was just being very intimidating. Rosales had told authorities that when he asked Sean to leave, he refused. And at one point, he even tried to push Sean out the door and got the door closed, but then Sean pushed his way back into the home. Once back inside the home, Sean punched Rosales in the face twice, which did leave a wound above his eye that investigators would later see. Rosales said he did try to call 911 during the altercation. He actually tried to do it using Siri on his iPhone, but the call did not go through. Feeling cornered and intimidated, Rosales then went to the kitchen where he took a knife from the knife block on the counter. He told investigators that he hoped this would encourage Sean to leave, but he said instead that Sean just stayed put and kept smiling at him. According to Lance Benzel's reporting for the Colorado Springs Gazette, Rosales described the moment he grabbed the knife to the courtroom saying, quote, he just laughed at me. It was like psycho, unquote. Rosales then stabbed Sean once in the abdomen, and this one stab with the large kitchen knife pretty much disemboweled Sean. Sean then left the scene after receiving the wound and was able to get into his Ford F-250, but he crashed the vehicle just a few houses away from the scene. The crash was reported about 3 a.m., and I'm unclear if this was a report by the police or by Rosales or from someone else in the area, but a police officer found the car crash And the officer that arrived on the scene would later testify that Sean's intestines were literally out of his body and laying in his lap. Now, from here, there's some conflicting stories on what actually happened to Sean. Some sources say that he was found dead behind the wheel of the F-250, while others say that he was found alive and sent to Memorial Hospital Central for emergency surgery, but was pronounced dead during the procedure. Regardless, Sean was now deceased after being in the house with Rosales for less than 20 minutes. When questioning him, police asked Rosales if he wished he would have handled the situation any differently. When he was asked this, Rosales said he considered getting the gun he kept in the home instead. Sean's identity was not released to the public until August 18th, which was three days after the incident. Rosales would end up getting discharged from the Army due to the allegations against him and he was out on a $50,000 bond. The trial determining Rosales' responsibility in Sean's death took about a week. The prosecutors pushed that while Sean may have been threatening, he did not deserve to be killed in such a violent way. They also posed that Rosales could have had an advantage when he got the knife and called police instead of stabbing Sean, that basically that could have been a way to hold him off to get somebody else there to help. The prosecution also said that the story that Rosales told was told in a way that tried to make the Make My Day law be be applicable in his case. If you're not familiar with this law, the Make My Day law is a controversial Colorado law that is still in effect. According to Lance Benzel's reporting for the Colorado Springs Gazette, this law, quote, permits deadly force against 
intruders under the reasonable belief they intend to commit a crime and may use any degree of force, however slight, in doing so, unquote. So basically it's saying if somebody comes into your home and they are going to rob you, they're going to mug you, they're going to rape you, they're going to murder you, any kind of threat that you feel, you can then exert force and deadly force. As an interesting fact, this law also applies to a hotel room you're staying in. So if you're in a hotel room and somebody breaks in and you feel they're going to do something, the law also comes into effect. Now, this did not apply in this case. I would assume because Sean coming into the home was a consented act. Like he did not break into the home and that's usually more tied into this law being used, but it is controversial and it is a little muddied. So I can't say that for sure, but that would be my inference from that. The jury of seven women and five men took about four hours to deliberate. And on August 16th, 2016, a year and a day after Sean's death, Rosales was convicted of second degree murder. In interviews given by members of the jury after the fact, the basic kind of feeling is that they understood Rosales' plight, but didn't have the evidence to really prove him innocent or at a lower charge, apparently. One juror even basically said that the incident was kind of blindly testosterone-induced, that Rosales could have done something differently, but was basically like kind of too hopped up. But the drama in this case did not end there. Sean's wife, Renee, collapsed after Rosales was taken from the courtroom. She started to have seizures and 911 had to be called. But her seizure stopped and she declined other treatment. But she was taken from the courthouse in a wheelchair. So sentencing was next. Rosales could be sentenced for 16 up to 48 years for the charge of second degree murder. The prosecution had requested that his sentence be 35 years. He ended up being sentenced to 26 years in jail. His immediate reaction was tears. In the Gazette's reporting about this case, after the sentencing, Rosales told his supporters in the courtroom, quote, I'm so sorry, you don't know how much I love you guys, unquote. According to Lance Benzel's reporting for the Colorado Springs Gazette, Kent Freudenberg who was Rosales' attorney, said of the verdict, quote, I'm incredibly disappointed. I thought that we showed the jury that he had the right to protect himself in his own home when he's attacked, and apparently they didn't agree, unquote. And then from there, unfortunately, time marches on. Rosales is serving his sentence. Renee, Sean's widow, was left to clean up his bloody pickup truck and would go on to lose the home that they lived in. And Sean's dog, Trix, would also pass away. Sean's autistic stepdaughter, Christy, was 11 years old at the time of the conviction. Sean's death has profoundly affected her, and she has become more introverted as of the last reporting about her. This case, and others like it, also created a new category of homicide. According to The Advocate, the National Coalition of Anti-Violence Programs has since educated people on what they call hookup-related homicide. Their definition of this is, quote, violence that occurs within the context of a hookup for casual sex. Hookup-related violence can occur through hookup websites, apps, cruising, sex parties, bars, and clubs, and can be connected to overlapping forms of violence, including hate violence, intimate partner violence, and sexual violence. Before we go on to our second case, I want to go ahead and touch base on some thoughts about this one. And I'm sorry, I have quite a few. Musing number one. This case gave me a weird flashback to the Leroy Dreith case that we covered in episode 17. First off, because it's a case I think a lot about. Very briefly, if you haven't listened to the episode, Leroy was found in his car and they thought that he had committed vehicular suicide, essentially, by running himself into a tree. And when his body was exhumed, it was shown that he actually had injuries indicative of somebody hurting him, intending to murder him prior to him getting in his car. So echoed in this case where Sean receives his wound, gets in the car, tries to escape, and has a car crash shortly after and passes. 
And I just think it's kind of ironic because it does reflect what they ended up finding out in the Dreith case. And that case still is unsolved. So please refer to episode 17 and please contact your local authorities if you know anything about that case. But it was something that made me think of Leroy's case very specifically. Musing number two. That had to be jarring for Renee. That is such a shocking way to find out that your husband is being unfaithful. And I don't know what their relationship was like, but if she did not know he had an interest in men, that would also be kind of shock. So I'm sure she had a lot of emotions to work through with this. And I just hope that she's doing well these days. Using number three. So cases like this are tough because we do only know one side of the story. The body in this case, Sean's body, only told so much. So it is a difficult case to piece together and to determine. However, it did strike me, the juror that talked about that basically what happened was testosterone induced, that basically like that it became like a machismo thing and Rosales just like amped it up when he could have backed things off. And I'm not saying that that is not possibly correct or that it's incorrect. But it just seemed to me like such an oversimplification of the situation. And it kind of gave me that tinge of what women deal with in situations like this or rape allegations that, you know, there's those flippant things of, well, she just wanted attention or it was her fault because of this or... Just the way it was phrased in many of these sources kind of made me think of things like that because it did seem so flippant, so oversimplified, and not, it just didn't encapsulate what I think really had to have happened in any sense of what happened. (laughs) So it just struck me as kind of odd. Using number four. You have to also wonder if there was a little extra vulnerability in this situation because Sean had taken a moment to get redressed, but Rosales was still naked through this entire exchange. So whether you believe what he did was right or wrong or justified or not justified, you do have to think there is maybe a little extra vulnerability of being nude. Like you think about the shows about like naked and afraid that they drop people in the wilderness naked because that's a thing we do on American television, but it is that kind of piece, that vulnerability piece. Musing number five. So I typically don't dive too much into right and wrong, justified, unjustified in a lot of our episodes because I do like to leave it up for interpretation. I always want to be sensitive to everybody's view of a case. I will say I am kind of inclined to believe Rosales' version of the story purely because of the kind of subtle escalation. It's not like he immediately lunges at him and is all over him and he's got to go get a knife. Like, it's that very kind of slow intimidation. And in his version of the story, I could see how Rosales kind of would get to this point of like, oh, is this guy ever going to leave? Like, what's going to happen? Like, so just because of that, I'm inclined to believe Rosales' side of the story. But I don't know if it's the truth or a version of the truth or a part of the truth or whatever. Using number six. I will say Rosales' reaction to the question from police about doing something different can be read in two very different ways. You can look at it in that, like I was just talking about, that Rosales is feeling very threatened. He's very scared for his life. He doesn't know what's going to happen. This is a more innocent view where he just is kind of at the end of not knowing what to do and you know, instead of grabbing a knife, could have grabbed a gun to protect himself. The not-so-innocent view is, you know, the malicious side of would that be more fulfilling or more what he would have wanted to do is do this with a gun versus a knife. Musing number seven. Something I did find really interesting in this case is this was a jury of seven women. And I would think that there would have been a longer deliberation or some question or a hung jury or something because women are put in this situation often. So I would think that women would relate to that. But I I guess I'm wrong. And they're still carrying out the law just because you relate to someone doesn't change how the law works. But when I saw how this verdict came out and saw the number of women on the panel, I found that very interesting. Using number eight. And this one's like a little life lesson from this particular case. 
Don't rely on Siri in an emergency. I understand why Rosales would have done this because you can do a hands-free call out, get some help. But at the end of the day, technology backfires. Get something in your hand, do something. Don't rely on technology to do it for you. Musing number nine. And another little life lesson here. No sex is ever worth it. And we're going to see some of that again in our next case. But I know we all get lonely, we get drunk, we get pent up, all the things happen. Protect yourself in those moments. It is never, ever worth putting yourself in this kind of situation. The second case we're diving into actually just finished up in trial about a week ago. And it revolves around Tinder. So they cater to all sexual preferences And some people consider it a dating app. Some people consider it a hookup app. I think it's more just whatever your need is you can find on there. (laughs) Stacey Feldman was a married mom of two. She was president of the parent-teacher organization at Southmore Elementary School in Denver, Colorado. And she also worked for a nonprofit organization called PSC, which stands for Partners Seeking a Cure. This organization works specifically in regards to a liver condition called primary sclerosing cholangitis. And the organization provides support to families, provides treatments for patients, and puts in efforts to fundraise and find a cure. On the morning of March 5th, 2015, 45-year-old Stacy got an email that every wife dreads. A woman had reached out to her saying that she had had an affair with Stacy's husband, and it would be within hours that Stacy would be found dead. On March 1st, 2015, at around 3 p.m., 911 operators in Denver received a call from Robert Feldman, Stacy's husband. He told the 911 operator that he came home and the shower was running, and Stacy was in the tub and unresponsive. Stacy's death was initially listed as undetermined by the medical examiner, but almost three years after Stacy's death in February 2018, Robert Feldman, her husband, was arrested and charged with first-degree murder. So let's dive into the evidence that became clear against Feldman over the following months and years. In February 2018, the details went public when the arrest affidavit was unsealed, and its eight pages detailed how Stacy had learned of an affair that Feldman was having via tender, and he killed her because of it. So there's quite a few major pillars in the evidence for this case. The first regards edible marijuana. Robert Feldman had told authorities when they arrived at the scene that Stacy had eaten some edible marijuana the night before, and he thought that this possibly could have caused her death. But the affidavit that was released explained that there was no THC in Stacy's system at the time of her death. If you're unfamiliar with marijuana and THC, THC is the active ingredient in marijuana, and that's basically what they test for in drug tests and things of that nature. Secondly, there was a $750,000 insurance policy on Stacy, which Feldman received after her death. Investigators first learned of the insurance policy and the amount Feldman received about three months after Stacy died. The policy was purchased in 2010, five years before her death. Now, this is a little bit of speculation because this could seem unrelated since it was five years prior to Stacy's death and not very immediately before. However, it would become known later that Robert Feldman had multiple affairs over the course in he and Stacy's marriage. This means that these other affairs would have happened in the years before she was killed and maybe closes that gap a little bit. But again, that's all speculation on my part. Feldman actually had to call the Denver Medical Examiner's Office himself to ask them to send a letter to the insurance company explaining that Stacy's death was not suspicious. He needed that letter in order to cash in on the life insurance policy. And another added note, there was no life insurance policy on Robert Feldman, only on Stacy. So it's not like it's something they did just being a responsible couple if something happened to one of them or both of them, that the kids were taking care of, yada, yada, yada. 
it was only on Stacy. Third big point here. At the same time that investigators started to learn about this life insurance policy, they also found out that Feldman had been having an affair. This is the same affair that I referred to at the beginning of talking about this case, but obviously investigators didn't know about it yet. In June 2015, a woman came forward and called the Metro Denver Crime Stoppers. She had seen Stacy's obituary in the paper and called into Crime Stoppers about four months after Stacy had passed. She had told Stacy herself in that email that she was having an affair with Feldman. This woman had met Feldman in February 2015. They met on Tinder and had gone on two dates. When they first began talking, Feldman had told her that he was divorced. Their first date took place on February 23rd, 2015, where they went and got coffee. And he actually used a fake name with his mistress. She asked what his last name was, and he basically kind of hesitated and then told her that his last name was Wool. So this mistress knew him as Robert Wool. Their second date took place on February 26, 2015. On this date, Feldman went to her home, they had dinner, and then had a sexual encounter. Feldman actually ghosted her after having sex on this date. Now, if you're not familiar with the terminology here, ghosting is basically when you just stop talking to someone out of the blue. Like, don't answer texts, don't answer calls, don't reach out, don't contact them on social media. It's just total radio silence. This made the mistress very suspicious and she decided to do some digging because she felt like maybe he wasn't actually divorced. She googled the name she knew, Robert Wolf, and I'm assuming some other details she knew about Feldman and eventually found out his real name and that he was married. She then sent that fateful email to Stacy to tell her of the affair. She asked Stacy if they were actually divorced and she included messages she had sent between she and Feldman. This email was sent the morning of the day Stacy would be found deceased on March 1st, 2015. And Stacy and the woman actually talked on the phone after Stacy had read the email. And this was at 8:52 a.m. and was clocked on Stacy's phone. Stacy explained to the woman that this wasn't the first time that Feldman had cheated on her and that she was basically just done with the relationship. She was over dealing with this. She was going to be out of there. So the evidence and circumstantial evidence against Feldman does not stop there. Authorities had their doubts about him from the onset. Feldman was not cooperative with police or firefighters when they arrived at the home after the 911 call. He avoided questions from authorities, even simple questions in regards to Stacy's medical history. He also immediately opted out of having an autopsy done on her body. Everyone at the scene also noticed that even though Feldman had said he had pulled Stacy out of the still running shower, there was no water on the bathroom floor. Feldman's 911 call also was called into question. It was very questionable. He told the 911 operator that he was performing CPR while he was on the phone with them. But CPR is not a quiet process. You most likely either have the phone to your ear and you're making a lot of kind of residual noise as your shoulder and your body is moving around or you have them on speakerphone. And if you're really doing CPR correctly, it's pretty physical. So there's going to be some noises that come across on a 911 call. And there were no noises on that recording of that call that were consistent with him actually doing CPR. What they did hear on the call was the toilet flushing and some items maybe being knocked over or knocked off a shelf or something to that effect during the call. Investigators noted that there was a rack in the shower that had bathroom items on it and those items had been knocked off of it. As time went on, Feldman's story also continued to get more holes in it. His story about what he was doing that morning changed when he both talked to investigators and to family members, and the story was often inconsistent. Believing that her husband was most likely involved in Stacy's death, in October 2017, investigators enlisted a new doctor to look at the evidence in her case. This was Dr. William Smock, and he's nationally recognized. He's a professor of medicine at the University of Louisville, and he also works with the Louisville Metro government on homicide investigations. And he specializes in domestic violence injuries like strangulation and suffocation. 
and he pointed out a lot of key things in Stacy's case. First off, he believed that Stacy was strangled with her clothes on and that her clothes were then removed to stage her death in the shower. She had impressions on her body that led him to thinking that she was clothed and her limp body allowed clothing to push into her. So think about when you fall asleep really, really hard and maybe you have like loose pajama pants on or something and you get the impression of the seam on your leg or something like that. That's essentially what we're talking about. Stacy also still had her watch on and most people don't leave their watch on to shower. Stacy had 80 injuries to her body. She did have bruising that was initially explained away as having been gotten when Feldman was getting her out of the tub or when she fell in the tub or during CPR. But in addition to the bruising on her body, she also had hemorrhaging in the eyes and blood pooled above the neck, which is called venous congestion. It's basically caused by tension or kinking of the veins in the area and causes that blood to build up. These injuries were not consistent with CPR or a slip and fall incident. Dr. Smock's belief was that Feldman may have put his knees on Stacy to hold her down and that she would have been unconscious from a strangulation or suffocation in about five to ten seconds, but would have taken one to two and a half minutes for her to stop breathing and pass away. Dr. Smock's official findings were declared in December 2017. According to Casey Baker's reporting for People, when the doctor reviewed Stacy's injuries fully, he believed that she had injuries consistent with, quote, an assault, which included blunt force trauma, strangulation, and suffocation, unquote. After reviewing the case, Dr. Smock declared Stacy's death a homicide, and Robert Feldman was arrested two months later. But this is not where Feldman's troublemaking ends to put it lightly. He was released on a $1 million bond and maximum supervision house arrest. But in July 2020, he was cited for renting out his family's pool for parties, which is against local Denver ordinances. And then in April 2021, he was accused of abusing the privileges of his house arrest. He was going for long bike rides, obviously outside the home, He was stopping at restaurants and shops, which was not approved and also not necessary. Due to the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, he literally could have gotten delivery from anywhere. In June 2021, Feldman requested to go back to work and a judge refused him. But the most disturbing thing that he did during his house arrest was that he was still on dating apps where he described himself as widowed. According to a couple of different sources, he used the name Robert Wolf on Tinder and also had a profile as Bob White on Facebook. And not only was he on dating apps, he was making connections with women and assaulting them. One woman that matched with him said she didn't feel threatened initially, but then he just constantly was pushing her to come to his house. And when she finally mentioned something to him about it, he said, well, I'm on house arrest. And she Googled him and knew that she definitely like missed a bullet there and that something bad could have happened to her. And it did to another woman. Another woman he was talking to, he invited to a pool. She didn't know it was the pool in his backyard. She ended up staying and it was going okay, but then he took her upstairs and sexually assaulted her. This woman reported it, but no charges were filed. But it was mentioned in his arrest affidavit. Feldman pleaded not guilty to his charges, and his trial was originally scheduled for April 2020. But due to COVID-19, there were multiple trial delays. $550,000 of the $750,000 he got in Stacy's life insurance policy was spent on his high-priced attorney. Like I said earlier, Feldman did admit to having multiple affairs during his marriage, but that's pretty much the only thing he admitted to through the trial. The prosecution's point was this that basically he tried to make it look like Stacy had fatally slipped in the shower when really he had killed her. So here's the timeline that the prosecution ended up putting together for that day. Stacy talked to the mistress that had emailed her on a phone call that started at 8.52 a.m. It looks like potentially that call could have lasted about an hour. There's not that anything that says that specifically, but Stacy did text one of her friends about an hour later at 10 a.m., 
She told her friend that she would see them at the church carnival later that day. Then after this phone call and this text goes out, Stacy confronts Feldman about this affair she's just found out about. And at that time, he then subdues her, strangles her, suffocates her, kills her, stages her. Now, the couple had two children, and Stacy was supposed to pick them up at noon from their religious school at Temple Sinai. And then from there, she would take them to the church carnival, which was happening, like, just adjacent to the religious school. But when no one came to pick up the children at noon, the staff called Stacy and then Robert Feldman. Stacy did not answer, and when Feldman answered, he said he'd be there soon. They called him again at 1245 when he still had not showed up. And in this call, he got kind of short with the staff and he claimed he thought a friend was picking up the kids. So he finally gets the kids at 1.05 p.m. Once he's picked them up, he took them to the carnival hosted by the church. Now, Stacy never showed up to the carnival or met with her friend she had texted that with that morning. And we now know that's because she was already deceased at that point. Feldman and the kids then leave the carnival and come home at around 3 p.m. Feldman then calls 911, saying that Stacy's in the shower, she's unresponsive. Emergency personnel arrive, and Stacy was pronounced dead at 3.40 p.m. So it's pretty obvious from this timeline that the whole reason he was late to get the kids was he was staging her body, probably cleaning himself up, and getting ready to head out the door to then come home to this mysterious scene. The defense's tactic was actually to object to Dr. Smock's testimony based on the fact that he's not a forensic pathologist. Now, a forensic pathologist can actually sign off on autopsy reports, but the judge allowed his testimony because he had such a long professional history and he's an expert on these types of crimes and he had the education in the background to speak to this as an expert opinion. The jury deliberated for three hours, and on April 19th, 2022, 59-year-old Robert Feldman was convicted of first-degree murder. He got life in prison without the possibility of parole. According to Casey Baker's reporting for People, Stacy's mother, Dorothy Malman, said to Feldman at the sentencing, quote, This is all because you couldn't keep your pants zipped and agree to the divorce Stacy wanted. You are evil. If you really loved your children, you wouldn't have killed their mother. You wouldn't have taken their mother from them. The only person you love is yourself, unquote. Okay, guys, I'm going to talk your ear off again because I have lots of thoughts on this one, just like our first case. Using number one, never underestimate a woman's ability to sleuth via the internet. Good on Feldman's mistress for doing her due diligence, but even better on her for telling someone what had happened. While investigators already had some inklings about this case, her information gave this case motive and that was so important. Musing number two, I also feel bad for this mistress because the thing is, is so many people are put in this situation because, I mean, now you can do a little bit more digging via Google, but if somebody's doing it smartly, you know, they can hide it from you. You're, you're, you're only hearing one side of somebody's story. So, It's so hard to find out first if, like, are you the other woman? Are you the other man? Are you the other person? And to find out that you are, which is enough of a hit as it is, an emotional hit, to then have it lead to this and this be a part of your life, like, how devastating. So, and I'll talk about this more in our safety tips, it is a point to always do your research when you're meeting somebody new. Musing number three. I gotta say, Feldman not wanting an autopsy is like the hugest red flag to me. If you came home and just found the supposed love of your life dead, wouldn't you want to know as much as you possibly could? Maybe that's just me. Musing number four. So Stacy's case was initially ruled an undetermined death, which probably worked in investigators' favor because It wasn't deemed as an accident, and they weren't actually, like, overturning a manner of death. So it probably made that stacking up of evidence a bit easier. Musing number five. So let's talk about Stacy being strangled slash suffocated by Robert Feldman. So I understand why that may have been a mode of murder because it's possibly more easily concealed. But you have to think about how personal that is. Like, you have to be in that person's face 
for minutes at a time. That is just so brutal. Musing number six. The audacity of this dude to be staging the crime scene while he's on the phone with 911. So we know we heard a toilet flush while he's on the phone with 911. I'm just assuming that like he used the restroom because he had some time on his hands. Then there's the sound of stuff falling down and they notice that, you know, the, the shelf in the shower has all its contents dropped onto the floor. I'm assuming that was a staging to make it look like maybe she flailed as she was falling in the shower and would have knocked those things over. And just to think that he's just like casually doing this while he's on the phone with 911 just astounds me. Musing number seven. So, so terrible what he does to his wife. Even worse that he's still chatting up women while he's on house arrest. I'm just gonna leave that there. Musing number eight. I cannot with men like this. Men that expect to go do whatever they want and get away with it and then act like the woman is the problem and the roadblock in their life. If you get caught, tuck your tail, get out, and move on. Women like Stacy pay with their dignity and their life. And it is unbelievable. It is so entitled, so self-serving on a fatal level. It is infuriating. Musing number nine. I just feel so much for Stacy's children. I'm sure this is unbelievable emotional pain. And on top of a day of like when you're a kid and you're going to the carnival or the fair or something like that, like think about what an exciting day that is. And then to come home to your mom dead and then find out your father killed her. Like, I send so much love to those children because they need it. There's going to be a lot to overcome, and that's a big emotional toil, and I just hope that they are able to live the best lives that they possibly can. So before we finish up for the day, I want to touch base on some safety tips when you're using online dating. And like I said earlier in the episode, some of these we've heard a million times and some of them were a little bit of a revelation to me. So I hope you stick around to hear these. Now these tips are a collection from a few different places and I kind of just compiled them into one long list because a lot do overlap. But some of the sources that I used was RAIN, which is the Rape, Abuse, Incest National Network. Edmonton, Canada Police, New York Times, Tinder, Hinge, and Bumble, which are all dating app platforms, and AARP, because they actually had a good one on there that wasn't listed anywhere else. And remember, these tips apply to everyone. Your gender, your sexual preference, none of that matters. This applies to everyone. So let's start with some safety tips for when you're still on the dating app platform or website or whatever it may be. Number one, use different photos on your dating profile than you do on your social media, website, etc. That way people can't image search your picture from your dating profile and find those other places and get more detailed information about you. Also, don't use photos that may pinpoint your location, like a picture in front of your house or apartment that may show the number or street or something like that. Number two, protect your account. Apps like these won't randomly email you asking for your account info, so don't ever respond to anything like that. Make sure to report it and make sure you have a strong password on your profile. You can also look into built-in security options on the app and apply things that allow you to not put too many details out there publicly before maybe matching and chatting with someone. Number three, when you meet someone, look them up. Check their social media if they have it linked to their dating app and do things like that to help see if they're a real person. You can also image search their dating profile if they're not following rule number one. Number four, Building off of that, be on the lookout for fake dating accounts. Some of the red flags here is there's no bio, no social media accounts, maybe there's only one picture. It's not a good idea to meet up with someone that you don't have a lot of information on or doesn't supply a lot of information after this. At best, this could be catfishing, and at worst, it gives me human trafficking vibes. Number five, don't send nudes, or at least anything you wouldn't usually show publicly. Some people are more comfortable with their body than others, and that's fine. But if you're sending something to someone that you might not want everybody to see, 
Some people can use this as blackmail for money, and these scams have happened. Number six, video chat before meeting in person. This way you can see that the person is that person, and you can get the initial feel for any red flags. Many of these apps have a video chat within the app, so you don't even have to worry about exchanging phone numbers or anything like that. Number seven, hold back on giving too much personal information, things like your address and your phone number. Stay on the platform while you get to know someone and even into meeting them. You can still connect, you can still chat, they don't have to have your phone number. This also means holding back on personal information about your children, their names, their ages, where they go to school. Unfortunately, people who are bad people aren't targeting just you. Number eight, if you run into a bad situation, block and report people on dating apps. According to Rain, the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, this is a list of good reasons to block and report a user. They ask for financial assistance in any way, often because of a sudden personal crisis. Now, side note, don't send money or bank info to anyone ever, like for any reason. Just don't do it. In 2018, the Edmonton police listed out 11 romance scams that they investigated that added up to a loss of $1,115,219.74. And that's just that year in just Edmonton. Look out for claims that the person is from the United States, but not living there, working, or they're traveling abroad. Claims to be recently widowed with children, and I'm not 100% sure on this, but apparently this is something that happens often. The person disappears suddenly from the site and then reappears with a different name. Definitely report that. They give vague answers to specific questions. This could be just not a real person or a bot or something similar. Overly complimentary and romantic too early in your communication. Don't let this put the rose-colored glasses on. This is a red flag and report these people too. They pressure you to provide your phone number or talk outside the dating app or site when you've told them no. They request your home or work address. And this often comes under the guise of that they want to send you a gift or flowers. Don't give them your info and report them. They often tell inconsistent stories or really over-the-top stories. They probably aren't real. The person uses really incoherent language and grammar, even though they supposedly have a high level of education. If someone continually requests photographs, if someone says they are a minor, please, please, please report and block someone that sends harassing or offensive messages or attempts to threaten or intimidate you in any way. Anyone that tries to sell you products or services, this is not the place for spam. And anything else that leads you to believe that it's a fake profile, a phishing profile, a spam, a scam, or any other terrible thing. Now here's some safety tips for when you're actually meeting up with someone that you've met on a dating site. Number one, meet in a public place. And I've actually had a story about this. This was years ago, but I met somebody on some dating app and we were going to get together and he kept pushing not only to not meet in a public place, but to meet somewhere like hiking or something like that where we are going to also, you know, be secluded. And I rejected that and he got kind of upset. And actually I told my girlfriends and they sent me a story like shortly after. It wasn't this guy, but of some other man that had like done that and he'd actually like been assaulting women. So that this one always, always hits home for me and it seems like the most simple thing. And I know sometimes it seems easier not to, but please, 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 please always meet in a public place. Number two, don't ride together. Don't depend on your date for transportation because it does lock you into having to be with that person or putting that person in a position of power if they're wanting to do something bad. Number three, tell someone or everyone or anyone where you are going with who and what you are doing. So they can at least know maybe a time frame that you're going to be out, maybe can check in, or at least will know where you were supposed to be. Number four, now this is the one that was on AARP's website and that I did not see anywhere else. Make sure your phone battery is fully charged. I have been so guilty of having the phone that's constantly dying. You can't call for help if your phone can't turn on. Number five, do not leave your personal belongings, including your drink, unattended with a new person, ever. Not on a date, not at a club, not at a concert, just don't ever do it. Number six, if you feel uncomfortable or have bad vibes at or feel pressured at any time during a date, exit the situation. 
you don't have to 100% even understand that feeling. If you are feeling weird about something, get out. And don't be afraid to enlist other people. You have the option of ride shares to get out of a situation like Uber and Lyft. And you can always enlist a bartender or restaurant staff or something like that at the place that you're at to help you. These things happen probably more often than you're thinking and you're not going to be putting out a person. Just get help if you need it and just leave if you need to. And number seven, if things are going well and things continue on through a date, remember, consent is important. No means no. Most importantly, out of all these safety things, and I've said this before, if that little pit in your gut starts to tingle, if something just doesn't seem right, get out of there. Again, you don't have to understand that feeling. You don't have to rationalize that feeling. You don't have to vocalize that feeling. Acknowledge it and get out. Well, guys, thanks so much for sticking around for what ended up being a little bit longer episode. I'd really, really love to hear your opinions on these cases. This is something that is kind of new to true crime, even though dating apps have been around for a while. It's something that is adding another layer into the dynamic of human interaction. So I'd love to hear what you think. I'm on Instagram at Altitude Crime Podcast, Altitude Crime on Facebook and Twitter. Please follow or subscribe if you loved this episode and you haven't already. And as always, all the good stuff is on the website, altitudecrime.com. You can find sources, the link to the Patreon, the link to merchandise, and at the bottom of that shop page, the link to a really adorable children's book, Cup Kayla and the Big Frosting Mess. Well, thank you so much for spending part of your week with me. Have a wonderful and safe week, and I will talk to you next week on Altitude Crime. Episode 56, Dating App Murders, was written, recorded, and edited by Amelia Allen. Music provided by podbean.com.